0: Welcome to Story Archaeology on www.storyarchaeology.com Chris's Ramble 5 The Landscape of Story This ramble is a little different from my previous ones. For a start, it's going to be much hotter. I'll have to smother myself in sun cream, wear a hat at all times, even when I'm recording. Maybe? And yes, I always forget this bit. Take plenty of water. The scenery is different as well. I won't be walking amongst rumpled oaks grumpy in their winter state or beneath the tangled leafless ash branches. I won't be tramping muddy hillsides attempting to ignore relentless drizzle of a winter day in Leitrim. Look, I know, I'm stretching a metaphor too far as usual. But being on the other side of the world, in Queensland, Australia, does lend a fresh perspective to everything. For a start, at night... I just cannot locate myself by the stars. Orion remains disturbingly upside down. By day trees keep me alert, a willow, or what at first glance is a willow, is a wattle. No great oaks, but the giants of this landscape, the Morton Bay Figs, are even more remarkable, those slow-grown, sculptured giants. And on what other sand-bright coastline would I encounter those startling Pandarus pines, appearing like dinosaur trees, bearing strange wooden pineapples that split and fall, dropping what would seem to be like dinosaur teeth or even dragon's teeth to be buried in the pale dry sand? Well, certainly not in Leitrim. The background texture, the soundscape, catches you out as well. I'm used to being woken up by birds. Sometimes in midsummer, distressingly early, I mean early. In late June, in the west of Ireland, the dawn chorus can commence around 3.30am. A A wide variety of birds chirp, twitter, warble, and occasionally launch into liquid, lyrical sound sequences. What they don't do is to chime in deep bell-like tones. But birds in Queensland also, I admit, sometimes just squawk. But it's not so much the dawn chorus here. It's more the crepuscular coral roosting cacophony. I was down by the Pine Edge Sea Line the other evening at roosting time. During the day, the rainbow lorikeets are a magnificent sight. But as darkness falls, they become menacing. "'The children of the night. "'They swoop and swarm in relentless feathered curling clouds, "'now black against the darkening skies. "'They screech persistently on and on "'until the high-pitched, raucous sound begins to overwhelm your ears. "'I tried to record that quarrelling chatter, "'but it just completely distorted the mic. "'A good ramble should include all the senses.' so I shouldn't leave out the scent, the representative taste of the Queensland landscape. A walk through or over wooded slopes home in Leitrim is always scented with the taste of dampness, well-moistured leaves, a fresh greenness, even on a warm day, even in winter. But there is nothing like the scent of the shady eucalyptus and gum trees here, thoroughly warmed by the sun. It's deep, earthy, kind of hard to describe. My family here tell me that I talk far too much about the weather. That's probably true. I I excuse the fault by explaining that while the weather around Brisbane is generally warm, hot or very hot, with occasional sudden thunderstorms that refuse to be ignored, on the whole the weather is reliable and within parameters slow to alter. In Leitrim, I'm more likely to be working off the minute cast, juggling work on the land, journeys on my bike, changing what top clothes to take or wear, and how not to get drenched or blown away. Weather changes so fast and is so delightfully unpredictable, perhaps I should say even whimsical, that it produces a very different attitude to everyday activity. But I should add one more observation. When weather gets serious in Queensland, it means business. It isn't being playful. I was in Brisbane in October 2019 when festival fireworks and all the other events were cancelled for fear of wildfire on tinder-dry grass and trees after a severe drought. A month or two later, I, like everyone else, was viewing images of hellish red skies, bushfires out of control, as well as the disastrous loss of property and deaths of both people and animals. It was the same with the terrible floods both in 2011 and in 2022. In 2011, I was working on my computer in Leitrim, every so often watching live-streamed coverage from Brisbane as the river levels rose overnight. A dangerously high tide and floods were forecast. I knew my family would be safe as they slept. They live on a hill. However, it was a strange feeling watching live from so far away. I remember seeing the restaurant on a riverside pontoon being swept away by the boisterous tidal flow. And the next morning I accompanied my son via video call as he attempted to get into work. It was surreal to say the least. Of course, the weather can be wild in the west of Ireland. Climate changes bringing in more ferocious windstorms as the years pass. We lose power on occasions due to tree branches, falling on lines, over-enthusiastic tractor driving, or, according to Electric Ireland, too many birds. Uh, there was also a nasty landslide a couple of years back at the top of Loch Allen, and, of course, fishermen off the Atlantic coast need to know their stuff. However... Our weather can still be described as changeable, capricious, yes, whimsical. It's a soft day, is a description commonly encountered, just meaning that it's grey and drizzly as normal. These rambles are meant to be concerned with stories in the landscape, and no, I haven't lost the plot and turned to meteorology, but this time I wanted to start from a different viewpoint and think about landscape in the stories. So, looking at an alternate vista, I'm wondering just how much the landscape in which the story is created directs the journey of the story. So, as a kind of thought experiment, I'm going to pick a few examples from the two viewpoints. It's a huge subject, and this is not a paper; it's just a ramble, a starting point for ideas to sort of coalesce around so. Here I am, attempting to make out story landscape vistas from two vastly differing islands. One an incredibly huge, continent-sized island, and the other kind of small. In fact, you could fit the journey from Head at the top of Donegal to, say, Valentia Island, at the tip of the Kerry Ring, four times over into a trip from Brisbane to Cairns. And then you wouldn't even have left Queensland. So... I'm still wondering, how does the landscape affect the stories that are told within it? How does location change the quality of the characters, the challenges and the resolutions? And when I say landscape, I am, of course, including the nature of the climate that shaped it. Now, I am no expert on indigenous Australian stories. I can only rely on the gathered information from tales I've read, been told in my many visits to Australia, or ones offered by Professor Nunn in books such as Edge of Memory. Well, let's start with one of those. I think I mentioned it somewhere, maybe in an article recently. Patrick Nunn discovered a lot of stories that carried information relevant to the well-being, even the survival of the people living on the land. As he mentioned in Edge of Memory, this information needed to be passed on down the generations in a highly memorable manner. Embedding the information in a story seemed to prove highly effective, and one example he gave was the story of Tikalik or Tiddalik, the frog who swallowed all the water of the land. As Patrick explained... This story was designed to remind people that in extremis, knowing where to find a water-holding frog and knowing how to squeeze it might just save your life. Here in Ireland, we have a water-rich country. Now, I borrowed the basic story of tickleick to use with young children to emphasise the importance of the water cycle to the environment. The story is still carrying a message, but not the one it held originally because the original story was location-specific. Oh, by the way, I always acknowledge its origin, and I very much doubt if the story ever gave rise to the princess-who-kisses-a-frog story either, and no, I'm not going to follow that brambly path for now. But while I am on the topic of water, stories about the creation, protection, or destruction of watery places are going to be plentiful in any story cycle from any environment. And, of course, river and lake origin stories abound everywhere. The Murray River in New South Wales, that's the longest river in Australia, is said to have been formed by an enormous fish, an enormous fish that appeared after a great earthquake. Yet the Barrow River, the second longest river in Ireland, was said to have been created by a meandering serpent, perhaps some kind of pest. There are similar Australian stories about the creation of lakes as well. Take Crater Lakes, for instance. One story tells how two young men ignored the advice of the elders and so angered the rainbow serpent that it caused the earth to erupt, forming several deep lakes. Now, Patrick Nunn discusses the creation of these lakes and suggests they hold memories of a long-ago volcanic eruption. And Ireland is a watery place, as I said before. Rivers, locks, pools, turlocks, streams, rivulets, rain, drizzle, muddy puddles. Water is everywhere and infuses everything. Watery places change with the weather, reflecting the sunlight and mirroring cloudscapes, completely altering the quality of the environment. It's no wonder that the old Irish stories often capture this quixotic changeability. Water, and in particular wells in Ireland, are limbic places. This also makes them kind of paradoxical. The well on Clothru's Isle is an island in a lake in a river. Shinnan's well is to be found at the bottom of the sea. It's kind of liminal, kind of paradoxical back in the iron age possibly earlier there is evidence that valuable items were sometimes placed into water pools wells rivers they were often broken or dismantled before their deposition perhaps to represent their removal from the everyday world of action into another world of memory and magic in Irish stories, pools, wells, rivers, locks, even the open sea, may well represent a portal to this other world of wonders and treasures. The Loch trumpets from near Awanmaca in Armagh, dating from around 100 BC, may be examples of this practice. Now, some of the earliest Irish stories pick up on this. Fergus MacLager uses the gift of his wonderful herbs, which he sticks in his ears to collect treasures from lands under wave. And yes, he also meets a Pest and enters into battle with it. Even a quick skim through the story archaeology archive will present many more examples. There's the Giladaka, where Finn keeps jumping down a well to reach the other world. Or the Children of Turin, where Brian goes one better than Fergus. He gets a diving helmet to explore the bottom of the sea. And then, of course, there are all the tales from the Imrava. I was wondering... Would you find a Pest in Australia? Well, no. And yes, Indigenous Australian stories contain plenty of snakes. That's hardly surprising. Australia is home to at least ten of the most venomous snakes in the world. And yet the Rainbow Serpent is not just a big snake, it's a world-shaping being creating and changing the landscape. And come to think of it, the Pest is not just a worm, although it can appear as just that. Yet it can also be a world shaping creature, becoming huge and monstrous, capable of causing madness. And as a worm, it also seems to be closely connected with conception and birth. Look at the conception of the second Aden in the top mark Adena, or many of the rev Schelter of the Torn. Sometimes, though, there are just no comparisons to be made. You won't find any kangaroos in Irish stories. And the guiding, mysterious deer of the Woodland Places are not likely to appear in Indigenous Australian stories. There are other animals undertaking those roles, perhaps the emu. Now, I would be surprised to meet one of them in Leitrim, although some years ago when ostrich meat became a thing for a while, it might have been possible to have encountered an ostrich on the road. And how can I possibly compare my favourite places... The starkly dramatic landscape of the Glasshouse Mountains in Queensland, formed from the last gasp of ancient volcanoes. They have their own Australian indigenous stories in the landscape, and I'll include a link to the Glasshouse Mountain story. There's my own hill, the one on which I live, in Leitrim, Shebeg, the small fairy hill a soft hill topped by an ancient cairn that carries its own stories, including one describing it as the burial site of Finn himself. I can include the link to this old story as well. So every hill is a hollow hill and every well a source. Every landscape tells its own story, and each story reflects the landscape that tells it. And yet there is still something other, about the Irish stories. They have a quicksilver, constantly changing quality. Nothing is ever quite what it seems. There are mysterious shadows behind uncertain shadows, and then bright clear sunlit moments of glorious action, all mixed up together. Just like the weather." Yes, when I started to write down this last paragraph, a sudden rose-gold ray of sunlight had just broken through a leaden sky. And now it's raining again. Or is that hail I can hear? So, yes, my family say I talk too much about the weather. That may be true, but who cares? It's beautiful and never boring. Just like the old Irish stories. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.